Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Back in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, when um, I was in college, it was uh, late 80s, one of the greatest runners in the world was a guy named uh, Eamon Coughlin. And I don't want to get the, give the false impression, uh, I don't like to run. I hate running. But uh, I liked following him just because I like sports and he was an amazing runner. He uh, held the record in the mile. And in 87, it was the, my senior year in college, he was in a qualifying heat for the World Indoor Track Championships. And uh, about, it was 1500 meter race and there were about two and a half laps left to go in the race and another runner tripped him. So he hit the deck and he sprawled out and he got up and he began to run and he caught the pack and he moved forward and he got himself into third place, which would qualify him to go on to the next race. And about 20 yards left in the race and he looked over his inside shoulder to make sure nobody was trying to come up on the inside and pass him. And as he looked over his inside shoulder, a runner came around the outside and he got fourth and he didn't move on to the next race because he didn't keep his eye on the prize. He didn't keep his eye on the goal, on the finish line. And so he was disqualified. One of the Apostle Paul's favorite analogies for the Christian life is a race. And the prize is to know Jesus Christ. Now, we will never know Jesus Christ fully in this lifetime, but we can move toward the goal. And it is easy for us as believers in Jesus Christ to become somewhat complacent. We've moved as far as we need to go. Maybe we feel like we've moved as far as we can go. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is like a great coach. He's, he's giving a motivational speech in between halves. At the break in between races, the qualifying in the next race, and he's rallying us, and he's saying, press on. Don't be content with where you are right now. Press on. Keep running in this race. Don't be tripped up by others. Don't be distracted by what may be happening in the stands. Don't stop running and pressing on in the race. Now, we've been in the book of Philippians for you parents. Uh, we've been studying Philippians this semester, and many of you uh, were absent last week, or some of you parents are visiting for the first time, so I want to go back and tie in the first part of chapter 3 of Philippians into what we're going to study this morning. So I'd like for you to read with me, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Paul begins by going back and recounting his own story and he's telling them, I was in the wrong race. I was running my own race. I was trying to establish my own righteousness. I was trying to prove to God that I was worthy of a relationship with him. And he said, from a human perspective, I got as far as anyone could go. And he's warning the Philippian believers, don't enter into that race. If you think you can get there on your own, you are absolutely wrong. Paul said, look at my life. I got as far as any person could go. 
I was of the chosen nation. I was a Jew, and I was a Jew of Jews. I was a Pharisee. I kept the law strictly. I was even one who persecuted the church. I loved Judaism that much. And as far as the standards of righteousness in the law, no one could make an accusation against me. And yet he says, nevertheless, I count all of those things as loss. Look in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, Paul acknowledges one day he's going to stand in front of the judge of this race. And when he stands in front of the judge of this race, he's not going to say, look at all my righteous deeds. He's going to say, look at the fact that I am in Christ. And the reason that I'm in Christ is because I believe, not because I've earned it. But I believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross counts for me. He paid the debt for my sins. And now because I have trusted in him, I have the righteousness of Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. And Paul wants to remind them, don't move past that. There are men who are beginning to filter into your church. And they're teaching you that there's something that you can add to the work of Jesus Christ. That's false. It's not Christ plus anything else. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. How do you qualify for the race? How do you get in? Well, it's invitation only. You can't earn your way in. God has invited you. So I want to invite you to come into this race and the only way that you get in is you get in through Jesus Christ. That's the card that you show at the door. I'm qualified in Christ. So Paul reminds them, don't be tripped up. Don't be deceived by those who are coming along beside you and trying to get you to run a different race. The race that you're qualified for is the race that you get in through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he reminds them, this is the finish line, this is the tape. Verse eight, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Look in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul says, this is the goal of life. The goal of life is to know Jesus Christ. That's where the finish line is. It's to know Jesus Christ. Paul says, we're not going to get there fully in this life, but someday we're going to see Jesus Christ face to face. And when we see him face to face, We will know him fully as we also have been fully known. He knows us completely, inside and out. There are no surprises. We can't shock him. And one day we're going to see him. We won't know everything about him, but we will know him accurately and fully. We won't have misunderstandings. And for all of eternity, we will continue to grow in that knowledge. Right now, the great goal of life is to move more fully and fully toward the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's not academic knowledge. Remember, Paul is writing, uh, he's a Jew, and he's writing from a Jewish mentality. And the knowledge of God is not intellectual. That's not to say that there isn't content involved. But it's not primarily intellectual knowledge. It's relational. It's like a parent knows the child. Does the parent know a lot of things about the child? Absolutely. You've been watching your children, parents. You've been watching them since the day they were born. In some respects, you know your children better than they know themselves. 
But you're not just filing all that information away and writing it in a journal so that you've got facts about your child. It is information that is expressed in the context of a relationship of deep and abiding love. It's parent-child. It's husband-wife. It's wife-husband. It's God and his people, God and his children, God and his family. It's relational knowledge. And Paul says, this is the goal of life. This is it. To know Jesus Christ. So run in the right direction. When I was a little kid, uh, you know, that I, I grew up playing hockey. Uh, I didn't live here in College Station at that time. By the way, we do have a rink now, which you should go check out. Greatest sport on earth, playing hockey. I loved it. I remember when I was playing as a little child, we, uh, we had a guy on our team who had incredible ability to score goals. The only problem was he always scored on our team. He never, he never scored a goal on the other team. He played defense most of the time, and he would park himself in front of the net, and a shot would come on net, and he would just touch it just a little, just enough to direct it past our goalie. He scored on us all the time. I remember a couple times where he got turned around, and he actually took shots on our goalie. And our goalie's so surprised, the puck goes in. I mean, he scored all the time. I've, I've experienced this myself uh, as an adult uh, coaching kids soccer. If you ever... Uh, <laughs> You've been out on the soccer field. If you haven't, you need to just just go by some Saturday. You will see it every week. Some kid gets turned around and he is going the wrong direction with the ball. And he's so excited because nobody's coming after him, right? <laughs> and and he's going and he's running down the field and he's about to score a goal. And you have all these parents just freaking out and they're you know they're they're running along the sideline with their son or daughter or whatever, going, "You're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong. Turn around!" You know, and they're just screaming and screaming and the coaches are screaming. And if I'm ever hoarse on a Sunday morning, that's why I'm one of those parents just screaming, "You oh, know, turn around, go the other way." And I just imagine that sometimes there's this great host in heaven and they are screaming at us, you're going the wrong way. You qualified for the race in Jesus Christ. Now what are you doing living for the, this world? What are you doing living for stuff that's going to perish, it's going to pass? What are you doing living to make a name for yourself when one day there will be only one name and it's Jesus Christ? You're going the wrong way. Turn around. There's only one goal that's worthy of pursuing in life, and it is the goal of knowing Jesus Christ. Look with me again in verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him. That's why I set aside all of my great accomplishments in life, Paul says, because they got me nothing. In fact, all that they did was produce pride in me, which pushed me further away from God. So I have set aside all of those things, and literally he says, I count them as excrement. Shocking language we talked about last week. He wants to grab their attention and say, these are things that pull you away from God because they produce pride in you. Paul says, I set them all aside so that I can know Jesus Christ. I remove the barriers so that I may know him. Second, he says, so that I may know the power of his resurrection. See, knowing Jesus Christ is not a matter of my effort unaided by the Spirit of God. I'm going to know God more. That's entirely contrary to what Paul has just said. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already reached the goal, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Why am I in this race? Well, because God chased me down. 
I want to lay hold of something because I was laid hold of. We love because he first loved us. How can we know Jesus Christ more fully? Well, it's the power of the resurrection. What Paul is saying here, very straightforwardly, is that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now abiding in you because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus didn't raise himself. God's Spirit did. That power resides in you and gives you the capacity to know Jesus Christ more and more fully. It is available to you. Now, I, I happen to be a goal setter. I like to, I like to set goals. Every year I'm, I'm creating long lists of goals. Sometimes I'm very demotivated because I have too many goals. Right? And, and I look at them and there's so many that I know I just, I'm not going to get them all done. And so I'm not motivated to pursue any of them. I got to stay focused. And sometimes I'm demotivated toward my goals because I have this sense, well, I can't really get it done. I don't want to make that a goal because I, I don't have the power to do it. I don't have the resources. Nothing more demotivating than that. When I was in college, I could actually, I could actually stuff a basketball. And I don't mean, you know, like, big monster jams and stuff like that, but I could just go, just get it over once in a while. And I couldn't do it in a game, but when everybody cleared out, you know, and there was a completely open lane and I could get a good run and maybe not even bounce the ball, but just hold it. And then I could just, I could, I could just get it over. And I worked and I worked and I worked just to get to that point. Now I realize I'm going to have a birthday this month and I'm going to be 44 and I will never stuff a basketball again. It's just, it is not going to happen ever again in my life, apart from a mini tramp or something like that. So I'm, I'm not working on plyometrics, you know. I'm not worried about that. I'm not trying to stuff a basketball again because I know I can't do it. I'm not motivated. There are probably other things in my life that I could actually accomplish, but I don't believe that I can. And so I don't go after them. Sometimes that happens to us spiritually. We get to this comfortable level of mediocrity in our relationship with God and we don't have this sense that we can really go further. I could know Jesus Christ more fully and so we settle in. And I hope if just one thing happens today as you're reading this passage that you leave here and you feel completely discontent with your relationship with God. I hope everybody walks out of here completely discontent. And I was, I was reading this passage this week, and I will tell you, I was incredibly convicted. I'm not always. Sometimes I'm just studying it and saying, well, this is what you should do, but I don't feel it myself, right? I, I confess. But I was reading this passage, and I thought, no, this is me. God, I really need you to stir me up. And Philippians 3, I think, is one of, maybe this is Paul's greatest motivational passage. Press on that I may know him, that I may know the power of the resurrection, you can move forward with Jesus Christ. Do you believe that you can? My dad told me a story when I was in school. He, he would tell me stories about himself in school so he could motivate me in school. And he told me this one story. When he started college, he first went to a junior college, and he took a course from uh, an instructor. The instructor laid out the syllabus for the whole class, and then at the end of the class he said, uh, you five boys come here, I need to talk to you. And so he pulled up these five boys and they're thinking, man, we you know, can't already be in trouble, right? It's just first day, syllabus just being laid out. But he pulled them up and he said, that syllabus that I, I just explained to everyone, uh, that doesn't apply to you, that grading system doesn't apply to you five. Because in my class, for the five of you, uh, you're either going to get an A or you're going to get an F. 
You can't get a B or a C or D. You're going to get an A or you're going to get an F. And here's the standards for the A. Because I look at all of you and you've got incredible potential and you're not living up to that potential. So you're going to get an A or you're going to get an F. And you know what? Man, it lit a fire under those boys. And they all got A's. My dad said for him it was a turning point. Because he had been a mediocre student up until that point in time. And from that point on, he realized, I can get an A. And you know what? Then he started getting A's. Because someone showed him, you can get an A. You can move on with Jesus Christ. Where you are today is not where you could be tomorrow or in a week or a month or a year. You could know Jesus Christ more fully than you do today because the power of God's spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is drawing you closer to Jesus Christ. Notice again what Paul says in verse 10. Third thing, he says, that I may know him, how? Through the power of his resurrection and then through the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Remember that word for fellowship? We saw that the first week that we began studying the book of Philippians. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Remember, this is a thank you letter. Paul is their missionary and he's thanking them. He's giving them a progress report. Here's what's happening in the ministry that you're supporting. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation, literally your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You have shared with me. And he's not talking about potlucks. Remember we talked about that being, this isn't just socializing Christians. This is, you have shared with me in the gospel. You have proclaimed the words of the gospel to your friends and to your family. You have shared with me in giving financially so that I can proclaim the gospel to others who have never heard it before. You've become participants, fellow sharers in the gospel. The result has been that you have suffered with me as well. You've become fellow sharers in the sufferings of Christ. Because the more fully you identify with Jesus Christ, the more you you will suffer. Paul's not out there seeking suffering and he's not telling the Philippians, go find suffering. What he's saying is identify fully with Jesus Christ and if you do, you will experience rejection and suffering in some form or fashion. For them, it might be imprisonment like Paul experienced. It might be the seizure of their property. It might even be the loss of life. For us, it might not be those things, but it might be uh, the scorn or the rejection of family or friends because we've identified fully with Jesus Christ. And the connection is this. Notice it very carefully. The connection is this. We will not experience the resurrection power today in our lives, moving us closer toward Christ, unless we identify fully with Jesus Christ, including his sufferings. Did you see the connection? Do you want to know Jesus Christ more fully? Do you really? The only way that you can know Jesus Christ more fully is that you identify completely with Jesus Christ. Not just his death, that paid the penalty for your sins, but also with his life. And if you identify fully with the sufferings of Jesus Christ, you yourself will suffer. If you identify fully with the sufferings of Jesus Christ, you're going to know the power of the resurrection in your life. If you don't, you're not going to experience this power. Does your family know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? 
Do they know that there's nothing more important to you in this life than to follow Jesus Christ? Do your friends know? Do your coworkers know? Or do they look at you and go, man, he's a nice person. She's really, she's kind. She's nice. She does good things. But do they know that you do things because you love Jesus Christ? Do they know you're identified with Jesus Christ? If you identify fully with Jesus Christ, not everyone will reject you, but some people are going to step back and say, hey, a little nutty, got a Bible beater here, got a, gosh, so fanatical, mm. kind of odd, kind of different, kind of weird. Out of step with the rest of us here in the office, out of step with us in the neighborhood. Are you willing to identify fully with Jesus Christ? Well, when I, I think about it for myself, you know, I think about, um, you know, I've got some friends who, who don't know Jesus. They know I'm a pastor. But I was thinking about it this week. I thought, do, they know I'm a pastor. That's great. That's my profession. But do they know that I love Jesus? And, and have I spoken to them in, in ways that they understand that my whole life, it's not about my job. My life is about Jesus Christ. You know, I think one, one guy in particular that, you know, I've, I know that I've kind of pulled back a little bit from that because I don't want him to think I'm strange. I was very convicted. I was very convicted of that. Is it worth it to identify fully with Jesus Christ? Experience suffering, scorn, rejection maybe? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to tell your family? You know, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself has not done. He doesn't ask us to pay a price that he has not paid or he is unwilling to pay. And whenever he asks us to do something that's costly and, and, and scary, he always promises that there will be a reward that's far beyond anything that we can imagine. Look back with me again, chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 10. Paul says, This is the great goal of my life, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. And that word for being conformed is the same word that he used in chapter 2 of Jesus Christ who was in the form of God, but he took on the form of a slave. And in the form of a slave, he suffered on our behalf and died. Jesus Christ did it. And Paul says, now I want to be conformed. I want to be like Jesus Christ. Why? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, um, I don't know if you pick up on it. In my translation, it says, in order that. Literally, Paul says, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Does that bother you theologically at all? This is conditional. Paul could have said, since we get the resurrection from the dead, but he makes it conditionally. He says, if somehow you attain to the resurrection from the dead. That word for attaining means literally to arrive at a destination. If somehow I might arrive at the destination, and he uses a unique word for resurrection. doesn't use it anywhere else, nowhere else in the whole New Testament. It is literally the, the out of resurrection. He puts a prefix on the front of this to really intensify this resurrection. What is Paul talking about? I thought that resurrection was a guarantee. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, won't you be resurrected? Is that not true? Isn't it a promise? Well, here Paul's talking about it conditionally. Let me, let me tell you what I think is going on here. In the Bible, there are at least three ways that resurrection is discussed. First, 
Uh, there's general resurrection. Daniel chapter 2, 12 verse 2, Daniel talks about the fact that everyone's going to be raised. Whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer, you will be resurrected unto uh, eternal condemnation because you chose to reject Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be resurrected to eternal life. Everyone will be resurrected. I don't know if you, you're aware of that fact, but everyone will experience some form of resurrection, believer or non-believer. Second, there is what John calls in Revelation the first resurrection. And he doesn't mean first in timing. What he means is first in priority. This is the promise to every believer. It is guaranteed. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be raised up and you will see Jesus Christ face to face and you will live for eternity with God. It's a promise. If you want to look up some of those other references, you can. Uh, Even Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 I think is talking about this resurrection where our bodies are transformed into the likeness of the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. That is a promise. Guaranteed. There's a third kind of resurrection that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as a, a better resurrection. I want you to turn back with me toward the end of your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's, say, let's start in verse, verse 32. Remember Hebrews 11 is all about faith. These people of faith uh, throughout history have accomplished incredible things just because they believed in the power of God. Not their own strength, but what God accomplished through them. Verse 32, it says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon. Remember Gideon, he conquers the whole Midianite army with just 300 men. Wow, it's amazing victory. Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And it'd be wonderful if the verse ended right there, period. And it talked about all these wonderful things that people received as a result of their faith, but it goes on. And it says, others were tortured, not accepting their release. They could have been released. How could they have been released? Remember the context, the New Testament. How could they be released? If they disassociated themselves with Jesus Christ, this is the condition. You want to get out of jail? You want to get away from torture? You don't want to be thrown to the lions? Renounce Christ. Renounce Christ. And these believers in Jesus Christ could have said, no, no, no. I don't really worship him. I'll make my offering to the emperor. But it says no. They were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. But they received a better resurrection. Why? Because they stayed identified with Jesus Christ. When they could have escaped, they said, no, I belong to Jesus Christ and I'll take whatever is coming to me in this life, but I will not be unfaithful to Jesus Christ. So what was the result? The writer says it's what he calls a better resurrection. Hey, every believer in Jesus Christ will be raised eternally and will have eternal life. 
But if you choose to identify yourself fully with Jesus Christ in this life, when you come into the presence of Jesus Christ, he will say to you, well done. You pursued the one prize that is worth pursuing, that is knowing me, making me known, staying identified with me in this life on earth. You chose well, well done. I think there's a great visual of this in the book of Acts. Turn back to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was one of the first deacons, is preaching a sermon. He's defending the faith of Jesus Christ in front of Pharisees, men who have rejected Christ, the ones who were the leaders of the nation, the priests, and had put Jesus on the cross. Look in verse 51, what he says to them. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. How to win friends and influence people, right? There's a great sermon there, man. Your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, but you did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They were convicted, but they became angry, not repentant. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. See, Stephen is about to be stoned. They're picking up stones, and they're about to to hurl rocks at his body until he's dead. Why? Because he was faithful to Jesus Christ. And here he is, he's down on the ground and he looks up into heaven and what does he see? He sees a really special scene. God God gives him a vision, a glimpse. Heaven is opened up and what does he see? He sees the throne of God and standing beside the throne is Jesus Christ. Now what's unusual about this is everywhere else in the New Testament, Jesus is seated because he's accomplished his work on the cross, he's done, he sits down. But now he's about to welcome one of his faithful servants and he stands up and he says, Stephen, well done. You're not leaving anything behind. Well done and he welcomes him in. Would you like to be welcomed in by Jesus Christ? Are you willing to identify fully with Jesus Christ to make it known that the number one goal in your life is to know Jesus Christ? And you'll take anything that comes with that. And Paul tells us how. He reminds us. Look back with me in chapter 3. Three words of exhortation. Verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it. What is that? This special resurrection? I'm not there yet. I have not become perfect or better. I have not reached the goal. I haven't broken through the tape yet. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the imagery there? Uh, he, he is... Uh, he's, He's using terminology of the race. In the the Pan-Hellenic Games in Olympia, 
the winner would be called up into the stands. He would receive the upward call and the judges would hand him the prize. And Paul says, this one thing, my translation says, this one thing I do. Literally, it is one thing. Paul says, but one thing. One thing. I can become confused and distracted and demotivated when I have all these different goals in my life. But if I know there is one goal, and that is to know Jesus Christ, then everything else just falls into place. Paul says one thing. One thing. Keep your eye on the prize. The prize is to know Jesus Christ. Second, look forward. Don't look back. Don't look around at the other runners around you. Don't look back at the past when you tripped and fell. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Uh, literally, he says, paying no attention to. Not forgetting. You can't forget what happened in the past. You can't. It's just not humanly possible. It's not the way our brain is wired, but I can not, I can choose not to pay attention to it. And what trips us up so often from moving forward with Jesus Christ is we feel like now I'm disqualified. I can't move forward. Look at the failure in my past. Look at the sin in my past. The fact that you're here this morning and you're living and breathing, I think, right? Okay. Yeah, we're all here. We're, We're living, we're breathing. That means you've got another day. And the reason that God has given you another day is so that you can press on. You don't have to stay where you are with Jesus Christ today. No one is so far gone. No one is so far gone. Do not believe that because that is the grace of God in your life. Look at the greatest heroes of the faith in the Bible and you will see incredible failure in every single one of their lives. God knows he is working with broken people, every single one of us. And so what he says is, push the spiritual reset button. Let's start again today. And press on to know Jesus Christ. Don't look behind. You're never that far gone, but God can't reach in and rescue you and move you forward from where you are today. You might have scars and you might have some bumps and bruises. But that doesn't mean that you can't know Jesus Christ more fully, that you can't serve him with your life. Third, don't run alone. There's a subtle shift. You may not have ever noticed it when you read through Philippians 3, but he shifts from first person singular to first person plural. Look at verse 15, verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as mature, have this orientation, this obsession in life. And if in anything you have a different obsession, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Let me shift the analogy a bit. The race that we actually run in the Christian life is much more like a relay race. And it's not that I win and as a result you lose. It's that we win together. Because I run for a while and then I hand it off to you and I become weary. And you encourage me and you refresh me and you take it for a lap. And then I... Receive it back from you and I run and we run together. And this is how God has designed the Christian life so that we would finish well together. Believers in Jesus Christ, you need others who are committed to one thing and you need them around you. 
Because there will become times when you trip and you stumble and you fall and you need a brother or sister in Christ to lift you up and say, no, 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 no. Don't quit the race. Don't, don't quit. You become discouraged. You become fatigued and you're tired and you want to step out for a while. And they say, no, no, let me carry you for a while. Let me put an arm around you for a while. Know Jesus Christ. Don't forget that's our one goal. You are living in a world that is just filled with distractions. And none of them will last. To me, this is one of the greatest motivational passages in the entire Bible. To refocus our attention on the one thing that matters, to know Jesus Christ. As we close, I want you to think about a few things this week. Okay, three questions just to, um, I want them to just run in your mind this week. The first is, if you listed your priorities, would knowing and becoming like Jesus be at the top? Would it make the top five? How do you know? How do you know what you're really living for? Second, what are the other pursuits that are distracting me from pursuing Christ more fully? Let's be honest. What are the things that are, that are pulling me away? Third, what specific step toward knowing Christ will I take this week? Again, the reason we come and we study the word of God is not so that we can walk out of here and know more facts. We study the word of God so that we become more and more like Jesus Christ, so we fall in love with him more. So I don't want you to leave here any week ever and not say there's some step that God's spirit is calling me to take to move toward Jesus Christ. I'd like for us all to bow together and I'd like for you just to think through these questions and ask God's spirit to speak directly to you. I don't know what he's going to say directly to you, but ask God's spirit to speak and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that you have a particular word that you wish to speak to every single one of us. Because I know that you long for us to know you. And that you are not content with where we are today. I pray, Father, that you would stir up our spirits, that we would not be content. pray, Lord, that today we would set aside the things that have gone on before. We would choose not to pay attention to them, but instead we would press on to know your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you give us hearts that are able to hear the voice of your spirit to us. Father, I thank you that that in Jesus Christ you qualified us for this race, that we don't have to work and earn a relationship with you, but you give it to to us freely in Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that this morning. Pray that all honor and glory would go to your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.